Hey, what's going on everybody? It's Michael from The Honest Youth Pastor back with the fourth video in the five video series looking at uh, critical race theory, social justice, and how uh, it interacts with the church. This book that we're looking at today is called Social Justice Goes to Church by John Harris. Um, in case this is your first video, there were three videos before this where we looked at a couple other books on this subject those will be linked in the description below so you can go check those out as well if you're interested but if this is your first one let me kind of go over the rules that i've been operating with within this structure uh, because of my commute and the amount of time i have during the day i did not read these books physically i listened to these books i listened to them three times through the first time listen to it straight through the second time i listened to it taking kind of notes of the highlights and the third time taking more detailed notes which then becomes this presentation now, the purpose of reading this book is to have a basic understanding of what it covers and what it talks about, as well as able to be informed and have informed conversations, rather, with others uh, that have also read this book. Um, the part of this, uh, this is part of a wider video series, which I've already said. Again, links will be down in the description if you want to look at those, uh, those overviews. Uh, so there's a preface, preface to the book that he starts off. Harris starts the book saying that, uh, by and large, historical critics of the modern-day progressivism have overlooked the impact of those in the uh, 1960s through the 1980s uh, and how much of a, a big part they've played in the modern-day social justice movement. Uh, Harris says that this is understandable as much of the 1960s, 70s, 80s were associated with Christianity that had more of a political motivation behind it, um, more like the religious right, the moral majority. Those groups were really known in those times, so they kind of overshadowed the progressives of their day. Uh, though they were well known, uh, the things, I'm sorry, though they are well known, the things those progressives stood for in the 60s, 70s, 80s have taken root within the evangelical church and their beliefs mirror those of the current social justice movement. One of the things that you'll see through this book, uh, we won't talk about it a lot in this overview because I don't want to take up the whole overview doing this, but what you will see and what we'll discuss a lot more in detail in the last video is there's going to be a lot of parallels that you see between the social justice movement of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, mainly the 70s. This book particularly focuses on the, the early 70s to the mid-70s, uh, and what's happening right now in the uh, in 2020 2021 so we'll see that uh, in general uh, you have between the 1960s and the, and the 2000s you have two basic fractions within the church uh, one that is a higher criticism and then the other that is fundamentalism uh, Harris uses this preface uh, there's a lot more of this preface but he goes over kind of the flower view of what he's going to cover in the book uh, chapter one, uh, cha Harris actually breaks this down into three parts. I don't have those parts because they're very short. Um, I'm assuming in the book there might be a page, maybe a page and a half. The audio version is like five minutes. Uh, it's not very long at all. It's two to five minutes. So it's just basically a preface of what you're going to cover in that part of the book. Chapters uh, one through, I think, six, we'll see here in a minute. Basically, it covers the main players in the progressive movement of the 60s and 70s and kind of going into the 80s a little bit. Uh, the first person that Harris brings up is a man named Jim, by the name of Jim Wallace. Uh, it's important to note that the people also that we're going to look at here are all people that, for the most part, are still alive. Like they're still playing an active role within evangelical uh, Christianity today. So this isn't some far off, this happened way long time ago. These people are still active. Um, which is something that I found very interesting about this book. 
So anyway, Wallace, uh, like many of his counterparts that we will look at in this book later, grew up with a fundamentalist background. Uh, like many, Wallace uh, had a series of events that led to him leaving the established church. For Wallace, this included uh, his later education in college, uh, racial issues that he read about, such as Malcolm X, his book, and then mainly the Vietnam War was kind of that last straw for Wallace uh, within the established evangelical church of his day and the fundamentalism that he grew up with. Uh, he later sa said that he found Jesus only after leaving the established church. Uh, I believe one of the quotes that Harris uses is that uh, Jim Wallace said that it was only after he left the church uh, that did he really uh, start pursuing Jesus in a real and authentic way. Uh, Wallace, though uh, he said he wasn't a Marxist, he did say that he liked the idea of Marx. Uh, he didn't seem, however, uh, to see he didn't see a transformative power in it. He saw that Marx could identify the problem, but didn't have a solution to that problem. Uh, in 1960, I'm sorry, 1976, Wallace wrote a book called The Agenda for Biblical People and said he was very thankful uh, he saw Christianity going in more of a left-leaning direction. And I think that's important to see here. It's one of the things that I think, again, we, um, we're we so separated from it, we don't know, which is why I think this is a really good book to kind of bring all of this to the forefront. Uh, but Christianity throughout time, the, par the part that Harris focuses on here is the 1970s, shows that um, there's certain things that were leaning Christianity uh, into a very more, you could call it left. Harris definitely calls it left throughout the book. I would call it more progressive Christianity, um, but it was going in that direction. And throughout the book, kind of uh, Harris shows us what happened, but that's later on in the book. Uh, one of Wallace's good friends and fellow progressives was somebody by the name of Wes Granberg Michelson. That's what chapter two is all about. Uh, Wes Granberg Michelson. He grew up in the same type of theology as Billy Graham. Uh, he grew up in a very, again, fundamentalist home. And college for him was the turning point when he became much more politically involved and he actually switched political parties. He actually later noted that he was very disappointed that he grew up in a conservative household. He, did, he disdained the idea that he was brought up in that manner. Uh, it was at Princeton Theological Seminary that he learned and adopted uh, more of a liberation theology. Uh, we'll go into that more in the last video. We talked about it in another one of the book reviews as well. But this is where uh, Wes Grambler Michelson really found liberation theology, found that uh, it was something that he felt was very connected to Christianity and needed to be pursued. Uh, Wallace and uh, Granberg Michelson met and bonded strongly over the Vietnam War. We're going to see that throughout all of the people that uh, we cover within this first part. Uh, all of these progressive Christians of the 70s all grew up in fundamentalist backgrounds. And one of the main contentions that brought them kind of all together was the Vietnam War. Uh, Harris says that eventually West left the faith altogether. However, um, he says this, but when I look it up, um, it, it, that doesn't seem to line up with what I see online. So I'm not sure what Harris means by West Granville Michelson left the faith. I'm not sure what he means by that. Um, again, I don't have the book, so I'm sure there's probably a footnote to that, but I don't have that to, to correlate with. So anyway, moving on to chapter three, Harris, uh, then introduces us to Sharon, uh, Gallagher. Um, Gallagher grew up in, again, an extremely conservative Christian household in which women weren't even allowed to speak in church. It wasn't anything they were allowed to do. But after attending college and reading uh, something called Women in the Church and Society, Gallagher actually found in that 
uh, her voice on the issues that she had with her upbringing and within her fundamentally Christianity. Um, she was able to put, put words to the feelings that she had. Gallagher later wrote, uh, later wrote a paper uh, for a magazine called Right On, uh, which was actually founded by Jack Sparks, and Jack Sparks was a part of the Jesus People Movement. We'll talk about the Jesus People Movement a little later, um, but just so you know, Right On was one of these magazines, uh, along with a few others that we'll talk about, that was really kind of the driving force be behind progressive Christianity. It was a way... Um, sort of a flagship thing to throw out there that other progressives could rally around and read and find a similar voice in. Uh, she found a home in the liberal progressive side of Christianity, finding new meaning behind texts that she had felt were, uh, had been interpreted, interpreted rather, in ways that left out the feminine viewpoint. Sharon Gallagher really uh, embraced a Christian feminism that, will, that Harris talks a little bit later about in the book and found a voice there that she hadn't had previously. Um, what we'll also see within the, and I don't want to skip ahead, but you're, we're going to see this throughout the book, is that um, feminism and egalitarianism plays a huge role within the progressive Christian movement. And Sharon Gallagher is just like one example of that, um, of really the embrace of that, the, the ability for that to give women a voice. And that's kind of what drew many people, especially Sharon Gallagher, to this movement was that it gave her um, this voice and this ability to voice what she had felt was wrong in her tradition. Uh, she found comfort in within these progressive Christianity circles that sought out, again, egalitarianism. They also sought out the end of the war, and they talked about justice for all people. Uh, chapter 4, he brings up uh, a guy named John Alexander. Uh, John Alexander, again, I, I'm sure you see, <laughs> sure, I'm sure you see the, the, uh, the, the, the kind of the, the trend here. Uh, was the son of a fundamentalist pastor as well. Uh, he grew up, and when he grew up, he, he found flaws, obviously, within his religious fundamental upbringing, and that turned him into an evangel uh, evangelical, evangelical civil rights advocate. Um, he was very discouraged at the time by the church's lack of concern for the civil rights movement. Uh, it, basically, their silence on it. Uh, it was at this point that led him to uh, a very, I'm sorry, that's not the right word, but he, he deconstructed. Uh, this led him to a deconstruction and a rebuilding of his faith. And it was all centered on the church's uh, response or lack of response to the civil rights movement and their voice in that. Uh, part of the rebuilding of his faith was actually the inclusion of liberation theology, like we had talked about before. Uh, when he found out about liberation theology, um, it was actually sort of a, a help to him in rebuilding his faith uh, in something he saw lacking in his, in his fundamentalist upbringing. Uh, he was very convinced that uh, he was convinced that teaching against the war, poverty, and f uh, preaching for civil rights were key to one's discipleship. Like you couldn't have an effective discipleship unless these were part of that. He wrote about this in uh, Freedom Now, which again was another one of those magazines like Right On. Uh, I don't know if I put it in here, but Sojourners was a huge magazine for progressive Christians as well. Um, and that was published in 1960s, the, the Freedom Now was. And all of these publications kind of went forth and went out and actually drew um, all of these people together in a way that um, they could find each other, talk about these issues, uh, bond around them. Uh, he eventually actually took a teaching position at Wheaton College, something that's actually will be important later on in the book. 
Uh, in chapter five, uh, we then talk about Richard Mao. And I know this is sort of a weird setup. When you read it, it makes a lot more sense. But basically, Paris is laying out all of the all of the leaders within the progressive Christian movement in the 1970s. But he's giving us a background of how they got to where um, where they were in the 1970s. Uh, Richard Mao, like many before him, was very disappointed in his fundamentalist upbringing. Again, this is just a pattern that we see. Uh, he was deeply influenced by the writings of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, he was also deeply influenced by evang uh, the evangelical evangelistic church's response to racism or again lack of and then the vietnam war these three things as far as the writings of certain people uh definitely the response to racism definitely the war in vietnam um these things seem to be uh the pillars that progressive christianity was built around um and it, obviously a response to fundamental or, yeah, fundamental Christianity as well. Uh, the evangelical response to all of these issues made Mao explore other faiths in hopes that he would find answers outside of his own tradition. However, he found that everything else was lacking and he actually returned to Christianity. But he brought modifications with him uh, from outside progressive non-Christian but just left-leaning ideas. He brought those back in and tried to integrate those with his faith. Uh, upon return, he brought these into his face. Most notably was the idea that sin was both personal and structural. What we'll see here is Mao kind of brings this idea into progressive Christianity. Other people obviously had it as well. Um, we'll see actually in a later chapter, people way before Mao had this idea, but he really made it popular in the, in the 1970s. That sin was not just a personal thing, but it was actually a structural thing as well. This is kind of um, where we get the idea of structural sin, corporate sin being brought into the church. This idea, though it's not Mao's by himself, uh, he was a big proponent of it. Uh, the idea of sin being both personal and structural was a common idea that then kind of worked its way through the progressive church and Christian movement. Ron Snyder, uh, which is a huge person within this progressive Christian movement, uh, still active up until today, uh, grew up as an anti-Baptist that was known for being extremely interested in helping the poor and marginalized. He was known for these things. Uh, he studied political activism and actually eventually joined the NAACP after working within the black community. When he was studying activism, he actually lived on the outside and then eventually in the black communities. And as he was having conversations with um, especially black young men during the civil rights movement, he became very... Um, attached to that that movement the what was happening to them what they were going through and again he his disposition was already bent toward the poor and the marginalized and when he saw that around him where he was studying he really latched on to that and helped uh, i don't have it as a note here but he was very active in in voting rights and making sure people had the ability to vote uh, later he and his wife became minimalist they actually adopted what was called the gradual tithe uh, the gradual tithe is where you set your base of uh, what you need to live on. And then as you uh, advance in your career, as you get more money, as you know, whatever, you know, income rises, uh, everything above that minimum of what you need then goes out to help the poor, the marginalized, anybody else. You, you don't use it for your own advancement or new things for you. You give it away. Uh, he actually taught this in a lot of different uh, courses and seminars and eventually wrote a book called The Rich Christians. Uh, the book itself was apparently at the time very well received. There was criticism, however, about that it had Marxist ideas as well, um, but he denied that that was a thing, he, that he was a Marxist. He actually claimed that Marxists didn't go far enough 
then he thought Christianity could go farther. Um, he thought that actually Christianity could do what Marxist was unable to do. Because again, like those before him that had looked at Marxism, uh, I think it was Wes, Grin, uh, Wes uh, Michelson, I forget the whole name. Um, he, he saw Marxism as a good idea, but he didn't see that there was any solutions, just problems identified. And he thought that Christianity could, could both identify the problem and solve the problem. One of the ways to solve that problem was the gradual, uh, gradual tithe uh, and giving your money away. Uh, he was known for very, being very personable and um, being able to network really, really well. Actually, there was uh, a convention that was held in which the Chicago Declaration was signed, and we'll talk about that in the next slide. But it, Harris at least puts forth this idea that the reason that this declaration was able to be signed, the reason that this meeting was able to be had, was because of Snyder, the fact that he was so well-liked, he was very personable, he was able to pull people together under a uh, similar banner, that then we have um, the Chicago Declaration that was signed. So the organization that was kind of formed by Snyder being able to network and pull these people together was called the Evangelicals for Social Action. It was actually born in 1973. A lot of the events that we're talking about, though, though Harris goes kind of all over the place in different times and different places. The main focus we're going to see as we go through the rest of this book basically comes around 1972, three, four, five, and six. Uh, those are the years that Harris primarily operates in, but he gives us a lot of background history about the people that then operate in that time frame, if that makes sense. So in 1973, the Evangelicals for Social Action was formed. The Chicago Declaration was signed. The declaration of the organization was that it acknowledged Christians' failure to show the love of God to those suffering social abuses such as racism, international trade, patriarchy, and war. Um, that was the declaration that Christians had failed to do that and that they should then in turn reverse those actions and show uh, that they, 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 to show God's love in those situations. Um, all of those mentioned up to this point, all of the people that were kind of, we were given, uh, Harris gave us sort of backgrounds on, those were all people that were there and that signed the Chicago Declaration. Um, Sojourners, the Christian Liberation Front, the Other Side Magazine, Evangelicals for Social Action, all of these people kind of came together at this, this convention uh, to sign the Chicago Declaration, and they kind of formed this new brand, Harris says, of evangelicalism. Up until that point, he would have basically uh, fundamentalism being like the prime um, on the market, this is what Christianity is. And now you have some of these people sort of deconstructing from fundamentalism, really is what they did, and then bringing in uh, more, quote-unquote, progressive ideas into their belief system. So they're not letting go of Christianity uh, and evangelicalism. They're just saying that there's there's got to be another way to do this. And then they start bringing in much, uh, much bigger social uh, justice sort of things into evangelicalism and saying this is what we see the Bible point to uh, and this is what we want to pursue. Uh, the group's mission was actually to take on the church and the world with Jesus and the Bible because they saw that the church fundamentally, because of where they'd come from in, within fundamentalism, they saw that the church had kind of dropped the ball on the things that Jesus preached about. They also saw that the world clearly had dropped the ball, so they were going to take on the church and the world with Jesus and the Bible. Um, they were firm in separating political beliefs and spiritual ones. 
they held the Bible to Bible reading and prayer. And those two things were very important aspects of their life. So they were very separate from more of an institutionalized church. And they said that there's a way to live this Christian life that doesn't involve fundamentalism, but also doesn't involve maybe, you know, being very political about, you know, your faith. You don't have to tie those two things together. Um, though they were similar to those kind of on much more the far left, Harris says, because of the social justice belief, they were set apart from, um, from the fundamentalists as well. They were set apart in part because they saw social justice as part of their biblical duty. So they really didn't fit into a category, Harris says. You had the more far left socially that didn't believe in the Bible, but was all about social justice. And then they had obviously the fundamentalism that they had come from that they didn't identify with. So they were sort of in the middle. They were their own thing. Um, but they did see social justice intricately tied to their biblical duties as disciples. That you, They couldn't separate the two things. You had to be social uh, involved in social justice in order to be a Christian in their mindset. So chapter eight, uh, one of the groups that desired to make their mark on Christianity in the 1970s uh, were the Christian feminists. So out of the Chicago Declaration and this Evangelicals for Social Change, the Christian feminists really, Harris says, kind of uh, started to take root because a lot of the same arguments that were being made about um, you know, the civil rights uh, were also made for women and uh, women's, women's rights as well. Uh, one of the more notable of these publications was called The Daughters of Sarah. The Daughters of Sarah sought to challenge the commonly held ideas that scripture had about women and the church, uh, basically saying that, um, oh, here we go, uh, they, they cited monarchies and slaveries as coastal institutions that we see in the Bible and made a correlation that the role of women fit into that same cultural category. So uh, Harris kind of goes into a lot more detail that I include in this slide here. Uh, but he talks about all the Christian feminists that kind of came about during this time, uh, all the kind of the arguments they had been made that basically said that the Bible had only been interpreted by men and men had missed a huge part of the picture within the Bible. And they were here to kind of correct that. Um, again, they do push the idea that, you know, we, we have misinterpreted the Bible over a lot of you know centuries or decades. Um, by only using the male perspective and saying that, well, the Bible says women should do this. And then they cited monarchy, slavery as cultural institutions, saying that if we're going to say those were cultural institutions, then we have to say that the women's role is a cultural institution as well. Um, articles that came out in publications were all that we are meant to be. It argued for uh, egalitarian marriage and women pastors. Again, from that argument, Harris says that, in the Bible, there, there's cultural things, and we're not in that culture anymore. Therefore, um, gender roles don't apply. So egalitarian marriage, in case you don't understand what that means, because some people don't know the difference between patriarchy, complementarianism, and egalitarianism, what they're pushing for there is this equality within the home. So there's the, the husband has no more say over how the house goes than the woman does, and they're equal partners in this marriage um, and they, they have to make decisions together. There is no lead there. Uh, and then obviously women pastors falls within that line of egalitarianism as well. Uh, at the time, the same argument was being made for the acceptance of homosexuals within the church. This argument didn't make it very far at the time because it was still held uh, as a belief, but it was still held as a belief in the movement. It's interesting that Harris actually cites this. In chapter 8, he does cite a few places where this the feminist movement, right behind the feminist movement, was the movement... Uh, and the belief being held by some of these progressive Christians that we mentioned in chapters one through seven, 
um, that homosexuality was not a sin. And again, just like women in the Bible, it had been misinterpreted and it was a cultural thing. Um, it didn't make it very far in the 1970s, apparently, but uh, it was a held belief that was coming right behind the feminist movement as well, using the exact same arguments. Uh, it's worth noting. Um, it was worth noting that because it plays a part later, uh, later on. Uh, chapter nine, Harris brings uh, uh, brings in Tom Skinner. Uh, Harris then brings in Tom Skinner that rejected a full acceptance of either fundamentalism or progressivism. Rather, Skinner sought a middle ground in which social justice was sought in light of the gospel. Uh, Harris makes a shift here in chapter nine. So chapters one through seven or one through six, he talks about kind of the founders of progressive Christianity, where they came from, why they thought the way they did. Then he moves into the Chicago declaration, this, which was known as, and again, I didn't cover that as well as I could have, but um, it was known as this pivotal moment in history. Um, some of the uh, Christian publications at the day said that like that would be looked back at as the turning point for Christians and Christianity. Um, so it was this big deal that was happening there. And then it shifts into from that came a lot of this feminist movement. And then we do have some people such as Tom Skinner saying that like we, we get where progressives are coming from, but it's not all about social action. It actually has to be like this blending of the gospel drives us to social action. And Tom Skinner was one of the first people that kind of talked about that. Um, this view is also held by somebody else, John Perkins. Perkins had seen injustice in the jails that he ministered to with black inmates. Uh, but he knew the gospel had to play a part in the social justice that brought them justice. He had, he had seen racism. He had seen uh, mistreatment as he ministered to these men in prisons. And he knew something had to be done, but he wasn't just okay with saying we need to overturn laws. He knew it had to be a little bit, it had to be deeper than that. It had to be a heart change. Uh, Samuel Escobar also was sort on this sort of same line of thinking. Uh, he wrote the Lizane Covenant and he tried to bring balance as well, stating that freedom in Christ uh, brought, I'm sorry, stating that the freedom Christ brought was from sin, not social or economic oppression, which is an important note and difference um, that Samuel Escobar held opposed to other progressive Christians of the day that said that Christ brought freedom from social and economic oppression. He's saying that that's, that's not what scripture says. It says that we were brought freedom from sin, not those things. Um, so he, he makes a clear distinction and difference from some of the progressives of his day. Um, again, the reason he had to make that statement, though, is because some of the progressives of his day we're saying that um, sin is not only personal, but it's also uh, corporate as well. So he's trying to break it down and say, you know, it's not that it's Christ didn't come to save us from corporate sin. He came as, to save us from personal sin that then affects the corporate sin. He was careful in how to state that knowing, I'm sorry, he was careful, however, to state that knowing this doesn't mean we just ignore the oppression. He wanted to make sure, and this is, um, one of the part that Harris really pushes in on a little bit for whatever reason, uh, Escobar wanted to make sure that people knew that uh, and interpreted the Bible in such a way that it was Christ saving us from sin. And then our understanding of that then pushed us forth to deal with social and economic oppression. We just can't ignore it, even though we know Christ. It's actually knowing Christ that pushes us toward that. Um, Samuel Escobar, like I said before, he wrote the Lizane Covenant, and the Lizane Covenant stated that injustices were caused by rich people not living simpler lives in order to help the poor people. This idea that 
if you're very well off, uh, injustice is caused by the fact that you're hoarding all of that and not trying to be generous and help other people with it. Uh, Richard Mao called at the same time, Richard Mao called for Christians to live in a way that point the, the Lizane uh, covenant pointed out, but he wanted it to be done through political means. Well, we're going to see Richard Mao, especially later in Harris's book, uh, is very political in how um, uh, he pushes he pushes some topics. Um, uh, here we go. The middle ground seemed to strike a chord with progressivism, and it actually united them despite their differences. So though there was a lot of differences within progressivism, this kind of middle ground that Skinner and uh, Perkins and Escobar was kind of pushing for brought people together from both sides and said, we can all get on board with that. We can all agree with that. Then um, this perceived unity allowed them to start forming communities and live out what they saw as the real church. Um, they were attempting to live in ways that we, that we read about in Acts, right? Within communities that were giving to one another, helping each other out, loving one another. Actually, a number of these communities sprung up around the United States to do just that. Uh, the Jesus People Movement, uh, a thing called the Family, a thing called Jesus House, something called the J.C. Powerhouse, the Agape House, the Living Room, God's Favorite Forever Family. These were the names of these communities in which people would come to live in, to live out this lifestyle that they saw in the book of Acts. Um, Harris notes, and I didn't note it here, but he does note that a lot of the people that came to these were, uh, again, this was happening a little bit before, a little bit after the Chicago Declaration. We need to keep in mind kind of when these were formed. But he said a lot of the people that were living in these communities or coming to these were like hippies, hippies of the day, right, uh, that, that were looking for, uh, a spiritualized, Christianized, hippie lifestyle that would say, hey, we're here. You can see the love of Christ. You can experience the love of Christ in community. Um, and they would come to these communities to live out the book of Acts together. Uh, this led them to uh, saying that, re I'm sorry, this led them, this led to them saying, <laughs> I can't even remember what I wrote. This led to them saying they rejected their parents' hypocrisy without rejecting their parents' Bible. Their idea was that if you don't help the needy, you aren't clearly Christian. Um, and I, I wanted to put this in here because I felt that this was very important. They were, they were very clear that they were not rejecting the Bible. They were, however, rejecting what they perceived to be and what may have very well been hypocrisies in the way that their, 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 their moms and their dads and their parents and their grandparents had lived out this Christianity. Again, you have to note that uh, all of the people that we've mentioned before, along with probably many of the people that came and lived in these communities, were coming from hyper or basically fundamentalist Christianity backgrounds. And what they saw was hypocrisy of how they lived and how they spoke versus what they saw in the Bible. So they were very careful to note that we're not giving up the Bible. We're giving up what we perceive to be the hypocrisy um, that you're living out. They saw themselves as living out the way Jesus did. Those groups began to see Jesus as a radical, um, and they were called to be just like him in, in that nature. Jesus had engaged from the outside, they said, of the institutions, and they were going to engage from outside the institutions as well. Chapters 11 and 12 one of the key aspects of this movement was that it was dis that it disconnected Jesus from the institutionalized church. In doing so, the movement actually saw itself as bringing back a biblical Christianity. Again, what they said before, they were 
They didn't. They weren't giving up the Bible. They were giving up the hypocrisy, right? They were trying to bring back a more uh, biblical Christianity. This is why they started living in communities and trying to live out the Book of Acts. They wanted. They 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 saw themselves. Harris says as people that were actually bringing back authentic Christianity by not only living the way that the early church did, but trying to pursue social justices that they saw that um, they saw the early church doing in their day and living out that way. These young adults became older and they started getting jobs, obviously getting married. Uh, and they started going into higher education, nonprofits, institutes um, in which they had actually once despised, but they were, they were obviously getting older and they were going into these places because that's kind of where they saw they could enact some change. Uh, the idea was to use these institutions to teach a new generation. Now, we'll get back to this a lot later, a couple chapters from now in the book. By teaching in the seminaries and colleges, these progressives' ideas slowly worked their way into the general church. Uh, over the next decade, this created a, a morph of different kinds of progressive evangelicals. Um, Harris actually says they were more evangelical, uh, or sorry, neo-evangelical. Uh, these neo-evangelicals were much different than the fundamentalist counterparts they had at the exact same time. In chapter 13, we kind of go into that a little bit. Uh, this new breed of evangelicals were, weren't against, I'm sorry, they were against, I don't know why I put weren't. These new breed of evangelicals were against both fundamentalism and the system. Uh, and you'll see this a lot. Uh, again, this, this goes back to what I said earlier. They were against they weren't against, they wanted to attack the church and culture with Jesus in the Bible. So they saw both as kind of opposition to what biblical Christianity was supposed to be. They put a large emphasis on fundamentalist twisting scripture to, quote, keep others outside uh, of fundamentalism down. They connected this uh, to and called them modern day Pharisees. The irony in this, uh, Harris said, is that both groups shared commonalities that dealt with those inside the group. So Harris notes, I think it was like four points. He says that they both had like a dualistic attitude. They both had a propensity towards separationism from people outside of the group. They had a habit of telling the people inside the groups to keep extra biblical precepts. So they're adding on rules to them. The rules just look different uh, from, from fundamentalism to progressivism. And they had a reputation for no, for what they were against. So, for example, and we'll talk about this in a minute, fundamentalism was known for being against culture, whereas progressivism was known for being uh, against the war or certain institutions. Uh, they also were, uh, the similarities between the two of them, Harris says, is they both had a willingness to sacrifice for social approval, where they didn't care what anybody else thought. They were going to live the way that they believed was right. Uh, though they wanted to be different, they were very much alike. But they is the fundamentalists and the neo-evangelical progressives. They were very much alike. Herod attributes some of this, and I think he's right here. He attributes it to the fact that they came from a fundamentalist background. And because of that, there were certain ways of thinking that they already had in their head. So even when they uh, kind of progressed and deconstructed and reconstructed their faith, they still had some of that same framework in their mind of how to function and they just tore down the walls on that framework and put up progressive ideas around the same sort of framework which is why you see similar ways of interacting within the group even though they had two distinctively different ideas of how to approach and what to approach uh, though they did share similarities the operation styles they had they were known for were very different is what i was just talking about the fundamentalists were known for their stances against the sins of vice so for example, drinking, smoking, dancing, playing cards, going to the movies, 
things like that. Uh, the, the fundamentalists also doubled down on the 19th century Puritan concept of the national covenant. Um, they accepted the idea that America was the beneficiary of divine blessing and by extension, virtuous. So um, Harris really sets up kind of why these two, like if you haven't been able to pick, up, pick it up before this point, Harris sets up kind of how these two groups were obviously in opposition to one another. So uh, we'll talk about it a little bit more in a minute, but obviously up to this point, the progressives have been uh, against uh, the system, the war, uh, sort of even capitalism a little bit, whereas the fundamentalists actually see America as a beneficiary of a divine blessing. They actually see it as God has blessed the nation. Um, and by that, the fundamentalists saw that America was just defaultly virtuous. So they had this love for country, this patriotism. In fact, and I didn't know this until Harris brings it up. I'm sure he has kind of a footnote in the book. But it, during World War One, Billy Graham uh, had actually stated that Christianity, quote, Christianity and patriotism are synonymous terms and hell and traitor are synonymous as well. So this idea was that if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be a patriot. And if you're not a patriot, you're a traitor and you're going to hell. So this was kind of built in, Harris says, to this this fundamental understanding that the fundamentalist had progressives on the other hand didn't preach against vices rather they spoke against misuse of power specifically the way america had misused its power um and you so you can even easily see how these two groups were very opposed to one another um just by by the way they were addressing if nothing else uh, america and the way it operated uh in the world chapter 14 he brings in Ron Snyder. Ron Snyder links social justice. Uh, well, he brings back Ron Snyder, rather. We've already talked about Ron Snyder, but he brings him back and he says, Ron Snyder links social justice to a commitment to scripture. Uh, one, for example, can't uh, be scriptural without being involved in social justice. We've seen that I did mention before, but he says Ron Snyder was a huge proponent of that. Um, so main, convincing mainstream evangelicals of the progressive idea, though, that you had to be involved in social justice uh, to be scriptural, he says, was going to be a little hard because of the progressives were a pretty small group, even though we've named a lot of them. It wasn't a huge movement at the time. Fundamentalist Christianity obviously was much bigger. So Harris says that to convince mainstream evangelicals that, you know, this was a thing was going to take it was going to be difficult. It was going to take a lot of work to do. Um, so the one of the ways that they did that was to kind of pull back to the revivalist uh, of the 19th century. And then what you're going to want to look at if you get this book, I, I don't dive into it because there's so much information in chapter 14. We'll cover just a few of them real quick. So progressive painted social reform as the natural outcome of orthodoxy. If you had correct orthodoxy, you would then pursue social, pursue social reform. Uh, this allowed progressives to associate their cause with the revivalists of the early 19th century uh, and its connection to, for example, abolition. Um, the U so the progressives had a utopian dream being brought about by immediate social action characterized by their movement. And they tied that back to the same ideas that the revivalists in the early 19th century had. Uh, there was this understanding among the 19th century revival revivalists of the reality, they said, of corporate sin. So they, they already have the same language and they kind of point back and connect their 
their movement to these revivalists saying that we're not the first people to have these ideas. These were already ideas. We're just, uh, we're just carrying these ideas on and they're appealing back to the 19th century revivalists to, to combat this idea that the fundamentalists are saying, Hey, you're, you're distorting Christianity. And they're going, this was already an idea. We're just pursuing it in the same way as this revivalist did. So for example, 19th century Wesleyans, uh, many of them, not all of them, but many of them, for example, stated that the Northern churches that did not speak up against slavery, um, during the you know civil war, for example, or even before, were just as guilty as those that earn that own slaves in the South. So again, it's this corporate sin. It's that you know about it, you don't say anything, therefore you are as equally as guilty, even though you haven't done the thing. And progressives pointed back to the Wesleyans saying this as an example of corporate sin and that, you know, this isn't something we're making up. The revivalists of the 19th century also said that slavery was a, a mirror for the country. The revivalists took responsibility for the nation's action as a whole during that time, as far as trying to lead a nation in repentance. Um, so all of the above were similar to the ideas that the progressives held to. Uh, they, like the Wesleyans, held to the corporate idea of sin as a reality. They, like the revivalists, said that the Vietnam War was a mirror for the country, like the revivalists has said slavery was a mirror to the country. Um, progressives admired the revivalists for making churches the vehicle of social reform in their day and sought to do the same thing in the 70s. Again, chapter 14 here, there is so much more information in it if you read this book. Uh, these are just a few of the different things, but, but Harris goes through and shows how they, uh, the progressives of the 1970s drew back to the early 19th century revivalists and pointed continually back saying, these are our ideas, that was their ideas, we're just continuing the same thing they've already done, as sort of uh, to legitimize what they were saying and what they were doing, um, because they didn't have a lot of sway in the culture at that time. So to kind of bolster that, to show that they had some sort of foundation that wasn't just what they were saying, they pointed back, and that's all of chapter 14. Um, an example of this being the same thought as we see, I'm sorry, so for example uh, of this being the same thought was seen in the campus crusades in the early 1970s that actually asked Christians to choose between the war or Christ. Um, and Harris just used that as an example of saying, you know, they were doing the same things in the 70s uh, as the revivalists were doing back in the early 19th century. So chapter 15, he says that though uh, this history seems disconnected from current the current situation that we're seeing in the church, now it's actually very much more connected. Um, there's roots there. So he gives a couple stats, and then chapter 15 is where Harris actually takes all the information that we've talked about up until this point and kind of brings it into chapter 15 where he's going to show... Um, how the organization kind of fell apart, even though it seemed like it was, it was heading in a direction where it was going to get full acceptance. Uh, and then we're going to see in chapter 15, kind of that fall apart uh, a little bit. So he gives us one stat that he, to just demonstrate how much progressivism in the seventies was actually gaining quite a bit of ground during that time. So he's, he goes back and he says in 1950s, Three-fourths of Fuller Theological Seminary students thought that evangelism was more important than social justice, but by the 1970s, only half of the students felt that same way. 
The progressive movement seemed to be gaining ground after the 1973 meeting in which the Chicago Declaration was signed. However, by the 1974 meeting, it was apparent that a lar the, the large growth of the organization was actually going to be its downfall. Uh, there were different groups fighting within the organization. The groups were being divided by economics, lifestyle proposals, biblical translations, Christian educational material, and their use of sexual sexist language, and a number of people seeming to push their own agenda. Um, the division only increased uh, by the 1975 meeting, in which a number of people actually predicted that the group was just going to split apart and end. Uh, and this end seemed even clearer as many members were getting married having kids and actually moving out of the communities that we had mentioned earlier that they had, they had moved into uh, either after the 1973 meeting or a little bit before that 1973 meeting um, they, they started forming families and then kind of moving on a little bit. The idea in chapter 15 that he sets forth here is that there was really this trajectory for the progressive Christian movement of the seventies that was heading in a direction that it was gaining a wide acceptance uh, because of, uh, so for example, uh, Ride On, the magazine, Sojourners, the magazine, uh, Sojourners, by the way, is still around. Um, they were gaining a lot of traction there. And then what Harris says happened is the movement began to fracture because there were so many competing ideas that everybody started pushing their own thing. So whether it was the feminist pushing for women's rights, whether it was, uh, you know, the, the black members pushing for civil activism, and civil rights, uh, whether it was the people that were looking for, you know, to be more economically sound and how Christians spent their money. Um, these groups just, they were all fighting for a piece of the table and it wasn't a big enough table. And because of that, and because of these members all kind of moving on, it was just a really fractured system, Harris says. So that moves us into this disagreement within the communities actually paired with the members' lack uh, of being able to to gain new members, uh, it actually was speeding up kind of the collapse and the fall of the evangelicals for social action. Um, there were more conservative evangelicals at this time, some of them fundamentalists, but some of them just mainline evangelicals that had adopted um, radio, television as a means to get their message out. Uh, think about people like Jerry Falwell, um, um, people like that, that, that were, were using these means in which to communicate their messages. The reason that's important, Herod says, is because at the time, progressive Christians actually saw uh, media as kind of controlled by the government, as something they didn't want a part of, and therefore their message was pretty much confined to uh, the magazines that they were writing and printing and distributing, which though it had reach, it didn't have as far reach as radio and television. And it was just a matter that conservative evangelicals, fundamental Christ, uh, evangelicals were adopting those and therefore their message was getting out to a wider audience. And because of that, the movement of progressive Christianity actually was, was losing members or not able to at least maintain the incoming, uh, in, maintain new members um, because they just weren't, nobody knew about them. Um, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, that was the other name. Uh, they were using these mediums and therefore Everybody knows about them because that's kind of what grew evangelicalism at the time was these print and radio and television ministries. Uh, many of these people uh, covered in the first section of the book. Uh, sorry. Many of the people covered in the first section of this book 
left, uh, as mentioned earlier, and pursued careers in nonprofits and higher education. Though they weren't influential at the time in evangelicalism, the progressive left became much more ecumenical, ecumenical. So Harris notes here that even the people that were very notable that he notes in the first half of the book uh, began to just kind of go into their different areas. So at the meetings, obviously, everybody was competing for a piece of the table that kind of just a lot of people left because of that, but they didn't give up on their ideas. They just went into the fields in which they were passionate about. So whether it be social justice, whether it be economics, whether it be civil rights, they all pursued those sorts of avenues instead of coming together as a group, they just pursued those sort of avenues. Um, so they didn't go away. They just went into these avenues. And as he mentioned earlier in a different chapter, going into these entities, whether it be colleges, seminaries, um, you know, just teaching a nonprofit that then influences everyone underneath them, especially, and he'll mention it here in a minute. If you are president of a seminary, that is going to be very influential for how the school is ran and what it, it teaches. And we'll get into that in a second. So chapter 16, he talks about where chapter 15 was kind of the fall. It was kind of the, the rise and the kind of the, the separation and uh, kind of the dis dissolvement of the movement a little bit. Uh, he says in chapter 16, it's actually, we see another kind of rise in the movement in a different way than they had anticipated. Uh, though there were obvious, though there was an obvious fall of the progressive Christian movement, they did not disappear. They stayed vocal in their various causes, uh, whether it be in economics, war, racism, or issues of life. Um, this led to many uh, from the upcoming generation of millennials to begin to embrace the same things that those in the progressive movement in the 1970s had held. Uh, Ron Snyder, for example, held great influence in regards to evolution on the view of abortion and total life stances within the pro-life movement. He um, wrote a lot of papers about it, talked a ton about uh, not just ending abortion, but what it looked like for the total life, uh, what that meant for the whole life of that, that baby that was born. Richard Mao had great influence as well. He was actually the president of, he became the president of Fuller Theological Seminary from 1993 to 2013. And then he had a lot of influence over obviously what was taught there, who was hired, what that looked like. Uh, Mao actually still serves uh, kind of within the Gospel Coalition and the magazine Christianity Today. Both of those things you've very probably likely heard. Uh, Mao has influence within those organizations. Russell Moore and Tim Keller actually both hold Mao as someone they look up to and uh, not, they look up to his stances on a variety of different issues, um, which is interesting because Keller and Moore actually have a lot of sway as well. And they look up to Mao as somebody that's um, kind of like a mentor-esque type of figure in their life, Harris says. Um, so Jim Wallace, he says from earlier, so all these people... I guess I should have mentioned this back when we started chapter 16. Harris's point here is that he's bringing all of the people he told us about in chapters one through seven and saying, okay, this is how they were active in the seventies. And then we move into chapter 16. He says, this is how they're all active now. Um, that these people aren't like figures of the past that are long, but dead. These are actually people that are still alive, still influencing evangelical Christianity. Now, even though there was sort of a dip in their acceptance, um, after the 70s, they became much more ecumenical and then worked their way into evangelical institutions, as Harris's, that's his stance on it. 
Um, Jim Wallace, he said, has made a huge impact on politics and Christianity uh, as well. Uh, in 2011, Wallace was named the face of progressive Christianity by the Daily Beast. Uh, in recent years, Wallace, along with other well-known progressive Christian leaders, have paired with other evangelical leaders in order to accomplish issues and social concerns. Harris brings this up basically to point out that um, though these names aren't well known uh, on the surface, they are actually influencing a lot of the things that are happening behind uh, basic conservative evangelicalism. So the ideas that he talks about and the things that he brings out in chapters one through seven, Harris is essentially saying, okay, these people that hold to um, ideas of so, like hardcore social justice and um, you know institute against the institutionalized church, um, those sorts of things. Harris says these are the people that are actually influencing thought within the conservative evangelical world now. That's Harris's concern. Um, in 2016, the election of Donald Trump brought many of these names back into a more public light. So, for example, uh, pairing them with the younger progressive Christians of the day. This is where Harris really brings it into the now. Uh, leading up to the 2016 election, a declaration by the American evangelicals concerned that Donald Trump opposed his, uh, I'm sorry, in 2016, uh, there was a declaration by the American evangelicals concerning Donald Trump, and they were opposing his stances on uh, racial issues, religious issues, and gender stances. Uh, Jim Wallace, Rod Snyder, and Wes Gramberg Michelson, all three we've heard about before, joined the younger progressives such as Rachel Hill Evans and Jamar Tisby to sign the declaration uh, about Donald Trump. After Trump's election, uh, Richard Mao commented that his feelings were bordering on despair. Jim Wallace commented that there was huge issues between the politics of Jesus and the politics of Trump. Uh, Harris brings this in. It seems like he brings this in just to distinguish that um, that there this was sort of a flashpoint within the evangelical church that really brings this progressive movement back into the picture uh, of everyday life. So in 2018, Jim Wallace, Tim Keller, Ed Stetzer, and uh, Trisla Newbell, I think is how you pronounce her name. I could be wrong gathered at Wheaton College to express their concerns that evangelicalism had become too closely tied to politics. I think Harris actually says politics and the Trump movement. I can't remember exactly. Then he says in 2019, the AND campaign led by Michael Ware and Justin uh, Gibney produced a 2020 election statement that promoted social justice and moral order. The reason Harris brings this up is because both Richard Mao and Ron Snyder were among those that signed it. Basically, what, what Harris seems to be trying to do here is say that the names that were very prominent and leading the progressive movement in the 1970s are now pairing with modern progressives to sort of give them backing and to put forth those same progressive ideas now. Uh, yeah, sorry, here we go. Uh, what we're seeing, Harris says, are mainstream evangelicals not only partnering with the 1970 area's progressives, but also adopting their language. Uh, so this is sort of where Harris ends the book. He does have, and I think it's worth noting, an appendix specifically on Tim Keller. I didn't find that incredibly important to include in this overview. You, obviously, if you get the book, you can read it. Basically, he's just talking about how Keller is an important 
a voice in the evangelical church now, but his influences, especially by uh, Marx and Richard Mao, are troubling to him. But you can read all of that um, if you get this book. Harris's book, essentially, uh, the purpose of it seems to be is to walk us through the early progressive movement, especially in the 1970s, show kind of what their ideas were, where they were coming from, what they were pushing for, and kind of how it's, you haven't heard about them, but now uh, with the kind of the, the turning point again, especially he seems to point to the election of Donald Trump, that was a turning point um, that started bringing these progressives back into the light. He does mention, um, yeah, here we go. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. After the death of George Floyd, the BLM stage marches across the United States. Evangelical leaders such as Ed Stetzer, David Platt, Tabidi and Mbimbele formed a more Christian style of these marches. And he's just comparing how all of this is coming together. Much of the language of these groups uh, sounded the same as the progressives in the 1970s. And all he's showing is that um, these people that were very active in the 1970s in pushing forth the progressive idea of Christianity are now back teaming with younger progressives to do the same thing, to bring social justice into the church and use the church as a social uh, mover um, within the church. Harris seems to be very much against social justice in the church, though he doesn't seem to um, define or bring forth any sort of alternative to it. His, his point of the book doesn't seem to be to present an alternative rather than to just lay the history out for the reader to say, this is what the history is. This is how we got where we are. Um, and these are the people that played a part in it. So I found this book to be very interesting historically wise. It's much different than the other three books I read. Um, and though it doesn't deal specifically, specifically with critical race theory, Obviously, it does have a lot to do with social justice um, and kind of the movement behind it. So when we do the final, uh, the final video talking about critical race theory, critical justice, um, critical theory, social justice, all of that in the church and how we are to do with this, I am glad I read this book because it gives us a really good idea of what had happened in the 70s and how that sort of is also playing out currently now. So with that being said, um, this was the last of the book overviews. Hopefully you found this helpful uh, in just kind of getting a grasp on what Harris's book is about. Also, hopefully you learned something as well. Um, I would encourage you to get this book um, just if for nothing else is to have that kind of history. Obviously, Harris's um, bent is very conservative. You can get that tone a bit from the book, but I, I feel personally like he did a really good job of not letting his bias weigh so heavily on the book that it, it, it takes away from the history part of it. I, I feel like he did a really good job just laying out the history. Somebody might disagree with that, but I feel like he, he did a pretty good job of that. So with that being said, that's the overview of this book. If you want to check out the four other overviews I did of the three other books, I'm sorry, the three other overviews I did of the three other books, the link will be down in the description for those. And then later, uh, soon after this video, I'll be putting out a video of kind of how I've taken in all of these books and my personal view on how I think we should approach critical race theory, social justice as believers here and now. So hopefully this has been helpful to you. If it has, make sure you like, comment, share. If you've read this book and you feel like I didn't really portray it very well, please tell me where in the comment section because I'd be really interested to kind of see where I didn't connect and you did. Um, 
Oh, all right. With that being said, guys, thank you for following. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for all that you do. I'll talk to you later.